This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Thursday. We're talking about eyes, ears, all sorts of stuff. We finished <laughs> ophthalmology yesterday. And uh, today we're going to talk about ears. And I think we should start with hearing screen. Let's get right into it. What do you oh, think? Oh, okay. Fine. All right. So we're on page 86, mm-hmm. section C. Let's do it. Oh, I'm doing hearing screening? I can do hearing screening. You want me to do hearing screening? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was I was doing the ear abnormalities. Fine. <laughs> so um, hearing screen is something that comes up on the board very often. That yeah. I remember. I remember this being tested. I don't remember the question, but it was tested. And um, so we need to know what we're doing. So there's two ways you could screen newborn in the uh, newborn period. Number one is that you have your ABR, your automated auditory brainstem response, or you have your EAOE, the evoked autoacoustic emissions. Now, these screening tests do not require an active response by the infant, and so they can be done while the baby is at rest or asleep. And that also, while this is presented as a benefit, it is also a, a source of great frustration for parents because you will often see issues with the screening test. Now, let's go over each one separately. So when we're talking about the uh, evoked autoacoustic emission, which I believe is commonly done in the newborn nursery, what you're actually doing is that you're measuring the acoustic feedback from the cochlea um, outer hair cells through the ossicles to the tympanic membrane and ear canal after a click stimulus is given to the infant, right? So the, the, the technician has this, has this machine, puts these, these cups on the baby's ears and is waiting for that response from the, um, from the, uh, from the baby's ears. Now, it's acceptable for newborn screening. The threshold is that of more than 35 decibels suggest abnormal screen, which means that if the technician has to reach a click sound that is so loud that it reaches above 35 decibels, then this is not really normal. It can test for several things, conductive hearing loss, sensory neural hearing loss, um, but not straight neural hearing loss, right? So just conductive and sensory neural. The advantages is that it's quicker than the ABR, which we'll talk about in a second, which is, I think, why it's mostly done in the nursery. The disadvantages is that they're more likely to be affected by debris or fluid in the external and or middle ear and thus have a higher referral rate. So very often you'll get babies who refer one ear or the other. Again, parents usually freak out about these things, rightfully so. Um, And there's so many things that could make the test go, um, uh, which could cause a baby to, to not pass. Uh, you're, you have an inability to detect some forms of sensory neural hearing loss, such as auditory neuropathy, um, and that is another reason why this test is not perfect. The slightly better test that we do in the NICU most commonly is the ABR, which basically measures EEG waves generated by the infant's auditory system in response to clicks via three electrodes placed on the infant's scalp. So now we're not just measuring a mechanical echo almost. Uh, we're actually looking at the brain response. This can be done after 34 weeks postmenstrual age, so don't try to do an ABR before then. And the way you screen is that if the threshold of uh, 35 decibels or more is still present, so you shouldn't have to require more than that. It's recommended in preterm infants after an NICU stay of more than five days, 
as the loss in this scenario is more likely to be neural than sensory neural or conductive. And that because it's not included in the um, OAE, then that's why you do the ABR. It's also recommended to be performed if the initial screen was failed by the OAE. So um, that could easily be a question, right? So baby fails an OAE in the, in the nursery, what is your next step? You could repeat it, but you could also do a, a, an ABR. So just to summarize, while the OAE tested conductive and sensory neural hearing loss, the ABR actually tests for both conductive, sensory neural, and neural hearing loss. The advantages is that it's, uh, there's automated versions enable uh, tests to be done quickly by trained staff, and uh, it is the, currently the preferred initial screening method for NICU grads because of the ability to detect auditory dyssynchrony. The issue is that it's probably uh, taking a longer time to do, and uh, I'm sure it has maybe an, a higher cost. I don't know about that. Um, so the, the, something else that's mentioned in here is the early hearing detection and intervention, the 136 recommendation that states the goal of screening and detection for hearing loss, which means you should screen everybody by one month, you should diagnose them by three months, and you should have an intervention in place by six months. It is established that the earlier the diagnosis and the intervention, the better the long-term outcomes, such as language, literacy, and social behavioral development. This, this actual uh, recommendation is at the root of the push to try to get CMV screened on so many babies is because we know that it's not just finding out the, the source. It's about intervening so quickly that you can actually improve outcomes. Okay. You're muted. Two years. <laughs> well, I was going to say, then we should... We should mix things up then as That's planned. hearing loss. Yeah, okay. Let's go. Um, let's talk about the categories of hearing loss then. Yeah. Um, so the first is conductive. Um, so this is really an interruption of sound conduction in the outer or middle ear. So the outer and middle ear. Something is blocking the passage of sound. It can be non-pathologic, and this is the most common. It's excess fluid, debris like earwax, um, or it can be pathologic, such as a deformity of the outer ear, like um, microtia, so a very small ear. So that's uh, kind of in the the most uh, outward uh, nearing the external part of the ear. That's conductive uh, hearing loss. Most babies in the newborn nursery fail for conductive hearing loss, and it's usually this kind of fluid debris type situation. Sensory neural hearing loss is a failure of sound transmission in the inner ear. Um, so that uh, includes uh, problems with the cochlea, the inner and outer hair cells, and the nerve, um, which um, for our purposes is the eighth cranial nerve. So that's where you have problems with senso sensory neural hearing. And then there can be a neuropathy. Um, so this is a mixed defect in the hair cells. So you may have functioning outer hair cells, but non-functioning inner hair cells, those closest to the nerve and a problem with the nerve. It's also referred to as auditory neuropathy or AN, auditory neuropathy slash dyssynchrony, AN slash AD, or it can be um, termed auditory neuropathy spectrum disorder, ANSD. And patients with this condition may have normal hearing. They may have sensory neural sensory slash neural hearing loss ranging from mild to severe, uh, which can be fluctuating. They may have poor speech perception, and um, they won't respond to amplification with hearing aids or cochlear implants. So it is testable um, 
uh, in the management, like what, how would you manage different types of hearing loss? So neuropathy, this AN, uh, auditory neuropathy, does not respond to amplification with hearing aids or cochlear implants. And then the final category of hearing loss is central. So the auditory canal, the inner ear are intact with normal sensory and neural pathways, but you may have abnormal auditory processing within the auditory cortex. So something in the brain itself um, that um, doesn't interpret signals. You want me to do hearing loss then? Fine. My silence says it all. <laughs> I, was, I was muted, you see? Okay. Um, so uh, what is the epidemiology of hearing loss? So on average, 2% of all infants screened will refer and about 15 to 20% of those referred will have confirmed hearing loss. And the rates of permanent hearing loss is one to three uh, out of a thousand in newborns, but this doubles at school age to three to four out of a thousand. So we often hear that, oh, they passed the hearing screen. So that you can still have hearing loss after the newborn hearing screen. Preterm infants that are higher risk composed to general term population with an incidence of 20 to 40 out of a thousand. So that's like, you know, 20 times higher <laughs> than the term population. Um, the etiology, it's genetic in 50% of cases. 70% um, is autosomal recessive, 15% autosomal dominant, 15% associated with other types of genetic trans transmission. And the most common genetic cause is a mutation in the Conexin 26 gene. This causes about 20 to 30% of all congenital hearing loss. And there are a number of syndromes associated with hearing loss. Um, Alport syndrome, which is one of our syndromes, craniostenostosis, Pierre-Robin sequence um, with micrognathia, Usher syndrome, Pendred syndrome, Wardenberg syndrome, which we've spoken about, Treacher-Collins, charge association, Klippel-Field sequence, trisomy 8, Stickler syndrome, and trisomy 21. Those are the genetic uh, and syndromic forms. Uh, acquired uh, happens in about 25%, and then the remaining quarter tend to have an unknown etiology. But in the acquired, um, this develops secondary to injury to the developing auditory system in the intrapartum or perinatal period. This can be secondary to hypoxia, infections, in particular the highest risks, obviously, with meningitis, uh, ischemia, severe hyperbilirubinemia, I think that's an important one to remember, complications of prematurity, and a host of ototoxic uh, medications, things like gentamicin, vancomycin, and furosemide, which we use all of those very commonly. So um, there is there is an association um, with gentamicin and a genetic risk. So there are these particular mutations. It's this uh, 1555A G oh. and 1494C T <laughs> mitochondrial mutations. Um, but I think just knowing that there are genetic mitochondrial mutations um, that result in a greater kind of sensitivity to hearing loss with the use of gentamicin. Even one dose of gentamicin can cause permanent hearing loss. Yikes. Um, it affects the cochlear hair cells. Don't say that. I know. It's terrifying, right? It's terrifying. Congenital infections. So CMV infection is the most common cause of non-hereditary sensory neural hearing loss. 
that is something you should know cold. 10 to 15% of babies with congenital CMV are symptomatic. 75% of those babies will have CNS symptoms with 60% sensory neural hearing loss. 5 to 10% of asymptomatic babies later develop sensory neural hearing loss. So they definitely need ongoing screening, even if asymptomatic. We can also see hearing loss in congenital rubella, syphilis, uh, and the Zika virus. Okay, you want me to finish with, uh, I think, these associated syndromes with the with the pits and skin tags. I think we should discuss. Let's do discuss. it. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So, um, so preauricular pits and sinuses. So we see these all the time. We're not always sure what to do with them, but let's get into it. They can be common. They're often uh, unilateral and isolated. And in general, they're not associated with hearing impairments. They're rarely associated with genetic syndromes. Some potential associations include Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, basically anything that has to do with Beckwith-Wiedemann, you should know. They mm-hmm. love Beckwith-Wiedemann. And branchio-otorenal syndrome. Um, they need to be monitored for secondary infections, cyst development, um, and if there are repeated concerns like repeated infections or drainage, it may require surgical removal of the pit. Um, uh, this is in contrast to the preauricular skin tag, um, which is, you know, an outward, an outfolding of the skin um, in front of the ear, can be isolated, can be associated with a number of congenital syndromes such as golden haar, hemifacial microsomia, and first and second branchial arch syndrome. Um, and again, in contrast to the preauricular pit and sinus, the infants are at risk for hearing loss on the same side of the tag. Um, and they don't need to be removed. Um, they don't get infected like the preauricular pits or sinus, but for cosmetic purposes, the tag can be surgically removed. Um, two other anomalies that are commonly associated with other syndromes, microtia, so a small, often deformed ear. They can be unilateral with the right side occurring more often than the left side or bilateral. This is associated with maternal isoretinoin uh, use. Um, they are at risk for hearing loss, mostly conductive, um, because it changes the way the ear can kind of capture sounds and can be seen in association with Treacher-Collins uh, syndrome, Golden Heart syndrome, and hemifacial microsomia. And finally, we may see these small cupped ears. Um, the ear is small. It's rounded. It has this kind of cupped shape um, and they can have an absent lobe. These babies are at risk for hearing loss. They are commonly associated with the CHARGE syndrome. Um, and the rim of the ear can vary in thickness and can be very thin. The lobe, like I said, can be more noticeably absent. It is associated uh, with uh, corpus, the agenesis of corpus callosum, uh, mental uh, difficulties, ocular coloboma, and micrognathia, and association with Hirschsprung's disease. Who knew? <laughs> oh, man, this is not good for us. You, you're getting more uh, fodder. Um, okay. Okay. Questions right. tomorrow? Questions tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow, Daphne. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.